0: I was blessed to really enjoy what I was doing the day after I left playing professional baseball because I was hungry enough and humble enough to go out there and do things voluntarily rather than just think, oh, people should come to me. People should hire me because of my resume. I I don't rarely ever talk about my resume. I just try to make sure that I can do what I can do the best I can do.
1: Hey and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gelner and thank you so much for being here. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. In today's episode, I welcome Dave Coggett, former Major League Baseball player, current author, and owner of PFA Fitness in California. Dave talks about some of his best practices to intensify pitching, and how he creates better command. But Dave also shares his own personal journey from a professional athlete to his inspiring evolution as a performance trainer and owner of PFA. If you have no idea what the words pocket, whip, and stick mean, then you will after this episode. Here is Dave Coggin. Dave, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I... A uh, good friend of ours, Matt Kozderka, put me in touch with you and, and said that you were doing an absolutely fantastic job. And since then, I've been doing some research, and I will have to say he's right. And so I'm I'm really excited, and I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. But for our listeners who may not know you as well as I do or as well as Matt does, uh, can you give us a little bit about how you got started in baseball and where you're at currently and what you guys are doing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When I first, um, a lot of people don't go far enough back to find out kind of where I came from and why I kind of push a lot of different things that I do. And some of the philosophies that come from my kind of days as a high school athlete and a young athlete coming through playing different sports. I was a, uh, uh, first known more of a soccer player to start, uh, then baseball is always a good game of mine that I was, I was excelling at, but it was mostly soccer that I played the most. then when high school started, uh, went out for the freshman uh, football team. I I made uh, third string, so I sat there on the bench for third string. And we ran the wishbone, and we ran the ball a lot. But I could always throw the ball. And uh, sophomore year, they brought in a new coach. I went back out, tried out again. I won the varsity job and led Southern California in passing as my sophomore, and then wow. kind of took off as a uh, as a three sport athlete in high school and all my scholarships that I was offered Uh, back in those days, you went on official visits, you know, not, not as many as you do anymore. And my official visits were to Florida, uh, Miami, Clemson, BYU, and USC. Cool. And ended up settling in on Clemson as a a quarterback and took a scholarship offer there to go play baseball and football there. Uh, From there, uh, I had a good senior year for baseball as well. And went on and signed uh, with the Philadelphia Phillies in the first round to, start my professional baseball career and, uh, spent 10 years with the Phillies, uh, a couple years here and there with the Braves, Rockies, and Rays mm-hmm. uh, ended baseball, uh, somewhere, gosh, I, don't, I can't remember the year now, almost, uh, 11, 12 years of doing this and kind of walked out of baseball wondering, wondering what to do and wanted to kind of be involved in different sports and didn't know whether I wanted to coach or not. So I got hooked up at USC with, with, uh, coach Tom house down there, a friend of mine knew him and he introduced me to him. So I spent a, uh, a summer down there, kind of getting my feet wet, figuring out if that's what I wanted to do. What it did light my candle was, is it taught me that I needed to learn more about the biomechanics and the fitness side of things, and the arm health is really where my passion was starting to go. So I decided um, not to stick around USC there, but to kind of start my own thing up in my neck of the woods, okay. uh, where I I had a friend of mine who rehabbed my shoulder uh, surgery back when I played and he owned a physical therapy called team physical therapy in Rancho Cucamonga and Jeff Beckendam uh, allowed me to to basically come in there at seven o'clock when they closed and start my program. And when we did that, we started the program from seven o'clock to nine o'clock and that began to kind of uh, start what we called prevention fitness for athletes. And from there we ended up uh, kind of switching into more of a, performance fitness for athletes here we outgrew the small physical therapy building there and and now we're here today in a in a really large building sixty thousand square foot building and mm-hmm. and uh, being able to help and work with uh, multiple major league teams and lots and lots of players for major leagues and minor leagues college down to high school and the youth so it's uh it's been kind of a cool ride to to see how it's developed and kind of where it started as injury prevention then moved to performance and then i kind of found my niche in the the kind of technical side of teaching mechanics and arm care and arm path and seeing how valuable that was and what a difference that made was, was pretty remarkable. And, you know, it's been an exciting ride to be able to be in the game still and still be around major league baseball and, and help these kids kind of achieve the dreams that I got to do.
1: You know, it's interesting that, you know, if if you could go back to something that you said earlier, after you got done playing, everybody goes through this period of time that they're like, well, what do I I want to do next? And, you know, just, just walk us through what, what was your process there? And there are probably some people listening that are getting to the tail end of their careers or just starting their, their lives into coaching or training. And just kind of, if you could go back and, and, you know, give those people advice or give yourself some advice from there, it's a really hard period of time, but what, what advice would you give?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I think my, my journey to this point, and it was where I was playing, I was playing independently, right? So there's tons of us that played professional baseball, and then we still think we have some years in us. We're ready, to just we're so close to get over that hump and get back on the field and perform at a high level. And I was that guy. I thought for sure I had another couple of years I could get back in. I, I signed with an independent team, and um, when that didn't work out, my arm was still bugging me and still having problems. I was like, okay, well, I've done everything that I could possibly do to get back in this game and it's just not going to happen. So I was able to walk away, at least with my, my mind, happy with what I tried to do. And it just wasn't the right thing. It was time to turn the page and move on to something else. So then I think best thing for me, my best thing that I could give advice for is I never burned any bridge I ever came across. I never treated anybody differently. That was either the president of a major league team down to the clubhouse of the, Single A team, mm-hmm. or just a person you met as a fan or as a coach. I always treated everybody the exact same. And so when I was able to kind of, okay, take a deep breath and figure out what do I want to do, that's when the options really were coming to me rather than me having to really search too many places. And through one contact, I mentioned uh, they put me into USC's summer camps and said, hey, there's a guy down there that needs help for running summer camps with all the youth kids that run from Monday to Thursday. So um, I, I signed up, I said, okay, get me involved in that. So I got down there, I started networking and I started meeting people. Then from there, I was like, okay, well, you guys have a high school showcase coming up. I'm, I'm going to help out. I'll volunteer. So I would volunteer. And at the same time, I was starting to coach privately over in my local area, working with some high school kids that were pretty talented. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I can trade with the, 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 the organization that's running this camp to get my kids in for free and all work for free. So to offset the price instead of paying for me to work. And they were just mm-hmm. like, wow, you're going to do that. You know, a, major, a former major league player is going to just volunteer his time to help coach in this, um, long grueling day from seven o'clock in the morning till about five o'clock in the evening and do these used things, uh, that were just a grind and standing on your feet. And I was like, of course, you know, this is, this is the, the game I love. And I knew that you're going to have to do some sweat equity. You're going to have to start to build those relationships that were a little different. I had lots of relationships in major league baseball, uh, professional baseball, but I had zero. uh, What I thought I had was zero in college rank. Mm -hmm. But what really started to happen is I volunteered my time in these showcases. You have 20, 25 different college coaches there that were also working these camps. And the baseball world is such a tight, small-knit world. Um, two guys came up to me in my one of my first uh, camps, and they go, "Hey, do you recognize us?" And I went, "You look familiar, but I, I honestly didn't know who they were." And it was uh, Andy Chakits and Andy Rojo, and I was like, "Wow, Andy Rojo at the time was at Long Beach State. He's with USA Baseball now. Mm-hmm. Of course, Coach Chakits is at UC Santa Barbara and one of the top coaches in the country." And they go, "Hey, do you know we were your you, we were your host?" at university of florida when we took you around all the baseball field and i said no way what a small world that was so by getting in there and and kind of just getting my my uh getting down in the trenches and meeting some of these coaches but offering my help for literally free and just doing whatever they needed to do not step on any toes not have any arrogance or anything that i know better because i played at this level and you didn't uh that really kind of let the guard down on a lot of coaches that were going to be able to help me and and get my players to different places and get them, uh, some attention. And it just really kind of started from there. So that was where I felt like, okay, you know, I like this. This is the kind of place I can, I can put my niche in this little window and kind of provide a window for fitness and technique. And it allowed me also, which was important. I could work with different athletes. Now, granted, most of the athletes are going to come to me for baseball. Most of them are going to come to me from pitching just because of my background. But I got to work with quarterbacks. I got to work with some volleyball players. I got to work with different athletes, which is always what I wanted to do, rather than go out and coach in minor league baseball and sit on a bus ride again. I just kind of know part of that. Uh, so, this was giving me an ability to kind of do things I was passionate about. And that old saying, right, if you enjoy what you're doing, you don't have to work a day in your life. I was blessed to really enjoy what I was doing the day after I left playing professional baseball because I was hungry enough and humble enough to go out there and do things voluntarily rather than just think, oh, people should come to me. People should hire me because of my resume. I, I don't rarely ever talk about my resume. I just mm-hmm. try to make sure that I can do what I can do the best I can do. And that's kind of how it started.
1: Sure, I, that's absolutely fantastic advice. And it's not it's not uncommon advice, It's but it's definitely the harder road. But obviously you look at what you've built and, and being able to st- sustain that. And it's really hard to, really, to be honest with you, sustain a, you see a lot of facilities that open up for a certain period of time. And man, it just, a lot of them don't last over a a long period of time, just because it is so hard to get started and continue to do that Mm -hmm. in in a way that you want. And it's expensive and, and I can only imagine, but so let's go ahead and and get into what you guys are doing at, at PFA and so uh, I always like to start in the off season just because it gives us a kind of a rundown to where we are currently and what you guys have done up to this point. So let's say that I am a, a, an athlete that wants to come train with you guys and let's just go on the pitching side first. So what would be some of the first things that you guys would do with me and, and just kind of take, walk us through that a little bit.
0: Sure. Yeah, we we'll um, get different athletes for different kind of uh, schedules or different distances. They're, they're coming in. So if there's an athlete that's coming in from a, you know, a long distance and he just wants to come in for a one week kind of eval. And then we take them through all the pocket and the whip and the stick, the mechanical side of things that we've kind of cornered. We'll um, we'll start them there. But if it's a person that's going to stay here the whole off season, uh, we'll do the same thing, but we'll just kind of provide them a little more support for the entire time and give them a, um, a little more one-on-one direction the entire time where the other one might be more phone call video support. Okay. The, the, the most important part that everybody kind of comes to me for is the arm path and mechanic side of things is how they can move efficiently or they can eliminate, um, dips in velocity or eliminate times on the DL, just different things that we have, um, uh, started to be known for a place that does that quite well. And the philosophies that kind of go with them which I can explain a little more in detail in a minute, but that's kind of the first thing. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll take an athlete in the, the, throw, the pitcher. will tell them, all right, where are you at in your throwing program? Okay, go ahead and start throwing. But really it's a hands-off approach in the beginning. I just want to watch what they do and just see how they warm up, see how they throw, what's their pre-throwing, what's their post-throwing because that important, that's an important step that I think gets really, really ignored, especially even at the higher levels, uh, ironically, meaning the nine, i always tell these kids 95% of your throws are not on a mound so 95% of your habits are going to be created good or bad in that place where you call your warm up or your throwing and hitters have a good approach to this i've always felt that hitters have a great idea of how to kind of get themselves ready for their quote unquote 5% which is their in game uh, at bats or their live to it from a coach or whatever they're doing in the cage. They have T work. They have soft talk. They have front toss. They have so many steps since they were drilled in their head since they've probably been eight years old to have all these things lead up to their game approach. And all of those things are based off their best swing. So they literally are doing all these great habits leading up to their swing in the game. And they're working on whatever they're having struggles with in the game. All those times, all those reps while pitching especially pitching, what they'll do is they'll schedule you. Hey, you got a bullpen on Wednesday and 95% of the time they're down there on the left field, right field line, just doing whatever they want, throw however they want. Maybe there's a little bit of structure, but typically not. And then one time a week, that coach is right there right behind him watching his bullpen and pointing out whatever he's doing wrong. If he, in a typically, if they've missed um, uh, in the dirt or high or whatever, then they go, Oh, let me see your grip or let me see that. It's a really terrible uh, approach. And it should be approached completely opposite of that. We should have a plan for these kids, for these athletes that is individually programmed. That isn't just a big one size fits all program, but maybe it's a one size fits all, but sprinkled inside these things are individual approaches that would be pointed out in our eval. So that's really where I start is. I start to see, all right, one, are there flaws in his, in his catch play that he can already get rid of wasted stuff, whether it's just a a habit, or actually, a, it's a physical thing that he's doing. Mm-hmm. Then, secondarily, we're going to talk about what is the most efficient arm path, who has them, why? Why should we look at that, and how does that relate to you? And then the last thing we do, let's make up uh, drills for the plyo balls, is where we use the plyo balls for. Let's make some drills that make sure that that habit starts to get either better. If you do, if you have something you're doing really good, you just don't know it, or let's get rid of the bad habit and make something different. So. When that starts the process, that's the most enlightening day that there is. I mean, you just see high level throwers that come in and they just are blown away by the way their arm can feel. Now, that's the first step. And that's the first step of just noticing what you did, because before that happened, you would never have noticed anything before that. So this is really just about not perfecting it, Mm -hmm. but progressing. And once you progress enough, you'll get closer to perfection. And the problem with pitching is, is that everybody wants to perfect so quickly. They want it right now. And it's just something that this is a motor pattern that takes time years and years to develop, but not so long to unwind if you are uh, needing to unwind it, but it does take some time and some reps. So that's where the drill work that what I call pitcher's t work comes into effect because now you're creating a plan before you've even picked up a baseball. That's actually starting to correct the habits that you have in the game. And we're starting from an early and it could be. From the arm path it could be from a landing position it, it really kind of goes this whole route but what we noticed was the arm path helped fix many many things in the landings in the lower half then if there were still issues once the arm path seeds were planted and he started to see the improvement and feeling better there then we moved to the lower half so there's a there's after lots of error and lots of trying to do it the wrong way meaning Trying to coach from the end of the chain back to the front,
2: mm-hmm.
0: we started to realize that, man, this is way more effective uh, as we started to look at the beginning of the chain, get that in the right starting position and let that thing go through its pattern. And then, wow, look at his legs, his leg whipping over, or whatever coaches usually tell guys they're not using their legs or they're not, you know, they're flying open or their head posture's off. We saw tons of this just getting. Fixed just by simply getting the athlete understanding what efficient arm path is, because the one most important thing is these athletes are really, really good athletes. Right at this high level, they are able to use athleticism to hide inefficiency, and we don't want that. We want the efficiency to be enhanced by the athleticism, and that's where baseball loses it because baseball is programmed, I think, to just look at the result and see if the result is good, whether that's from a radar gun or whether that's from a, a strike or a ball. And that's not good enough to me. I think you have to know what the body should do to move properly, because if we looked at all of major league baseball, and I'll tell this to a lot of guys on our first eval is I'll tell everybody, all right, let's sit down and watch 30 games. All right. We call 80 pitchers throw. Now what can you tell me that you're going to watch and take from those games that we can, we can fix in your delivery or we can emulate in your delivery? Well, Of course, that's going to be a confusing kind of look on their face because they're going to be like, wow, there's pitchers throwing from side arms, there's guys stabbing, there's guys with the glove high, glove low, there's tall, there's short, there's all different types of styles. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, good, good answer. So now let's take this one step further. Let's take away all the relievers that we just watched because relievers got to be a reliever for the, for the main reason, because somewhere in baseball, they were unable to they sustained their, their stuff, maybe past that first time through the lineup, or they had a lot of injuries and and they, or they couldn't sustain their velocity. There's some kind of thing in there that and somewhere in baseball, they decided to, you can't be a starter anymore. Let's try you in the bullpen. Oh, wow. You're doing a great job in the bullpen. And then, so let's get rid of those guys because there's somewhere that there's some inefficiency there, but we're using your athleticism to still be that. Now the careers start to shorten up uh, sometimes when you do that, or the injuries to, to, can pile up. Now, let's go to the starting pitchers that you see come up, but you don't quite know their names. They came up, for, they've been up for a year or two, maybe three, and then they are kind of start to fade out. Now, I'm, I'm a great example of that. So that person, let's get rid of him because he's not your number one or two guy. and That's who we want to look at. So let's look at the number one and two pitchers on these staff that you know the names well. You see them in all-star games. You see them throwing 200-plus in, uh, innings a year. Let's, let's look at that. Now, when you start to look at that group, There's some really interesting, clean windows that start to pop up. And they're the same windows that I started to kind of look at how shortstops and how certain positions that aren't pitchers can convert to being a pitcher and do it seamlessly and actually pass up so many pitchers that have been their whole life trying to make it to a high level. And here's this shortstop who is in double A, he can't hit anymore, or he's down a Dominican, he can't hit, but he's got three things going for him that a pitcher has. He's got a great arm. He has to be accurate to be shortstop with that arm. And then he has to be able to generate all that power in a short space very quickly and still maintain accuracy and velocity. So that's a pitcher that does that every single day of his life, trying to do that a hundred times in a game, hopefully for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And when I started to look at that, I started to go, wow, there's some similarities. There's some really obvious similarities. And that's where I started to kind of direct my approach was not kind of listening to just what everybody can do, I started to kind of think about, well, if I want to build a somebody who can last long, throw lots of innings, that's where I want to start from. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't, you know, if, if I don't want to look at the funkiest delivery in baseball and go, well, oh, look at this guy. He's in the big leagues. You know, that's, that's just a, uh, that's the wrong approach. And that's where we started to really kind of, man, I mean, really see some things that made a major, major impact on some very high, high level pitchers. And then from the ground up from the little leaguers when you can take a little leaguer and make him more efficient because he doesn't have the strength or athleticism yet to, to do it wrong. When you make him efficient, give him the tools and the habits that he can do daily. And he starts to kind of, you know, to make his changes. He takes him from a kid who maybe is just trying to make a little league team. He's their all-star pitcher a year or two later. Uh, he'd take that kid that was trying to make freshman team. And now he's like on varsity and this varsity kid, he's a college scholarship and and so on and so forth. We started to see these things and it wasn't just a, a pattern of every now and again. This was a very, very consistent pattern, and that's where I get really excited when athletes, after day one and an eval, they look at you and they go, "Holy cow, that feels so free and easy, and my arm has zero stress." When they start telling you that, and bingo. knowing from being that person, yeah, it's bingo time. So uh, that's what gets us excited. I know I kind of went off a little bit on that, but that's uh, that's how excited I get on on day one with an eval, when someone comes in, they, they haven't seen this before, but they've maybe seen it on Instagram or they kind of get it. Cause they tried it, but they don't know ever, all the details about it, but they know, wow, this does feel better. And high level throwers have good instincts. They they know actually the body itself is kind of smart too.
2: Mm-hmm. It,
0: it, it knows like, if you look at pictures who have played this game for a long time, you know, nobody tried to get their arm path longer and more stabbing and more tense. Right. <laughs> that's That's kind of a, A crazy thing to think about. You look at these guys and you see how they've kind of gone into more of a efficient delivery, a cleaner delivery, a compact delivery, something that doesn't have a ton of wasted movement. And that literally is what we call the pocket. And that's exactly the first step we take in an approach to make sure the rest of the chain kind of starts to find that place because the body's smart. It knows uh, if it's hurting, it starts to kind of get closer to center. Power comes closer to center. It's just, there's, there's too many things that are too obvious to ignore that I I find it almost um, amazing that there are still people out there that teach the opposite. It kind of blows my mind.
1: Well, to be fair, it's probably the people that do that are are t- teaching what they were taught in the past. And it, they're true. I mean, uh, that's just, you know, my observation about that. But you talked about there being yeah. a lot of arm path issues and. And I'm sure that's a common problem that you, that you see. But as best you can through the podcast, what what really are you are you looking for as far as arm path or just some of the some of the other common problems that you see with a lot of the kids that come in? And and I know that's that's a variety of ages, but mm-hmm. arm path is is. That can be from youth age all the way to big league guys that have terrible arm path. But to be short, what are some of, you know, the the most common problems that you see and, and work, tell, or work us through what you would work through with them.
0: Yeah. So what I'll I'll do this, I'll, I'll start kind of painting the picture of how I look at or how the steps I took to, um, to get to the point where the arm path was the most important thing. So originally, uh, years ago, I started looking at deliveries and this is really close to where I left from the uh, Tom house, looking at videos of high, uh, you know, slow motion analysis and all these things and kind of going, wow, I'm going to start to look at deliveries a little differently. So that's how I kind of just started to get into this. So I went home and I started looking on YouTube and I, I went to some uh, all-star lineups from gosh, this is years ago. And I started to kind of go, well, let me search his name. Let me search his name. And I said, let me, let me start to think about what are some things that they all do that at least those windows are the same because I knew that everybody does things a lot different, but there's got to be some windows that we can start to look at and identify. So mm-hmm. the first thing I saw, obviously, was an obvious one where, you know, the front hip slightly elevated, leaving the front hip, the front shoulder slightly elevated. So you kind of more, you can picture kind of that weight staying back kind of uh, look on a picture. So that was pretty obvious there. And and you could see that when someone wants to throw the ball, uh, let's say for a long toss, as hard as they can or, or pull down, you know, the first thing is naturally without thinking their body is going to do that position to kind of create their body to make into a whip. So that was pretty obvious. So we knew that that's a pretty generic uh, way to kind of teach guys and make sure that they get into good positions to counterbalance the angle of the mound, and to be able to keep their weight over their back leg and be able to drive. So all that stuff was pretty, pretty good. Okay. Now the second one was more subtle and, it was, it was interesting because I was watching a Tim Lincecum game of catch and he was just playing catch. And this may be hard to describe just, a, uh, over the, over a podcast, but he's throwing to Buster Posey and he's just kind of on flat ground getting ready for his game. But he was throwing, releasing the ball and he would stay on one leg kind of in a stick position. We call that. So he was holding that position after he throws. So he's imagine him just on one leg, nice, quick arm, loose whip, hit the guy in the chest. So he would really show that he was really trying to to stick that position every single time, whether it was subconscious or conscious, I don't know, but he was doing that. And he would throw and he'd throw again, and he'd throw again. And then he threw one, hit him in the chest, but he kind of wrapped around and fell, you know, kind of fell to the side and both feet hit the ground. And you can see, he kind of got frustrated, even though the ball was right at the, right at the chest. And he went back and he threw the next one and he just threw a halitzer, and he just, I mean, hit the brakes, just boom, just stopped. And he was just balancing there for a good three or four seconds on one foot. So I had to turn the computer off and I went outside to the room and uh, to the gym. And uh, here I am, I'm, I'm playing catch with another guy. It's a major league pitcher and we're throwing now. We didn't talk about that video. I was just doing that on my own, but we start playing catch. And as we're throwing, I started to notice something that both of us were almost doing identical things that Lincecum was doing, which was playing catch, but holding that position on that leg. Now it wasn't as a, as obvious and, um, as Tim was doing it, but it was a definite approach of kind of staying upright, nice and tall, letting my arm extend and reach out, but keeping it completely loose and relaxed. And it hit me like, Oh, okay, let me go back and watch some of these videos in spring training. When you watch all, um, 10 pitchers throwing at once. And of course I was one of those pitchers. So I have a good feel for familiarity about what that looks like and what that feels like. And I, I realized, yeah, every one of those pitchers, when they hit that ground on that post leg and they stick the ground, it stays there. And that upper body creates a nice, good stiffness about it to block and support. Because the best thing about elite athletes is, is they can push, but they can pull it just as quickly. So meaning when they go into that full hard rotation to throw hundred miles an hour, they're also at the almost at the time that that foot hits the ground, they're going to stop all that momentum. And if you're at elite, if you're an elite athlete to do both those things, you're going to be pretty special. So, what you're doing when you're doing that, either consciously or subconsciously, is you're teaching the body how to break, how to break, how to break. And then you're teaching it at the next level, how to keep that loose, whippy arm and no tension in the arm. So, as we teach our guys, we're showing tension free upper body, but a very nice, tight core when you stick that landing to learn how to stop. So, that's where I started to go, okay, I said, I'm onto something here that I've never heard anybody kind of preach that, that way. So, we call that stick in our landing. So, okay, what do I do? I go and I start teaching everybody okay guys look this is the one thing i noticed in all these all these pitchers blah blah across the board they stick their landing they hold this position they build their strength and their core and their low back and they learn the timing of hitting the brakes so i get that and i go some po's that might be kind of uncoordinated or just growing or or an outfielder who's converting from being an outfielder to a pitcher and these guys are are just a mess they're just sloppy they're they can't they can't stick their landing very well they're having a tough time doing it Mm -hmm. and and um Mind you, I don't tell anybody to do that in the first time. I'm just watching to see how they play catch. And those kind of pitch, the outfielders or the POs, they tend to collapse and they tend to, you know, fall up to the side when they're trying to throw the ball a little harder. Okay, so then I would teach them all that. They would struggle with it, but they would eventually start to get better at it, but slowly. Now the shortstop, if I had a pitcher come in for who's who's just working with me for the first time, and he played shortstop, or he played third base, or he was a catcher, or he was a quarterback, when he was playing catch. I wasn't even telling him yet. And he was already instinctually doing that almost every throw. And I went, gosh, well, am I going to teach this guy? He already can do it. So then it was more teaching him how to do that at maybe a higher stride length or something. Right. Mm-hmm. But it kind of got my interest in something. I said, well, let me look at why these guys can all do it. And what's the difference? And when I started to lay these guys all side by side, it was really obvious all the guys who had struggling to, to hit that landing and stick that landing, like major league and pro athletes do or high level throwers. They were all long arm. They were stabbing the ball. They were late. They were wristing it. There was extra stuff going on in their arm path where the shortstops and these other throwers were just taking the ball and getting right up into that elbow. uh, Basically where that armpit is, the elbow lays back and throwing the ball as, as if you could picture an infielder throwing the ball, right? Never were they, taught to do any of these things. I mean, you think of what shortstops are, are taught. They're taught everything, but really throwing. So they just naturally do things uh, that you have, that when you pay attention to, you'll start to see them because if you ask them, Hey, what's your, what's your drills? What's your, what, what are habits you do when you catch place that, you know, how do you pitch so well? Well, ironically, they have none, right? They have zero. They mm-hmm. just go out and just throw the ball. Sure. But when you really see what they're doing, you're seeing the ball taken out of their glove. The thumb slightly turns down a lot of times. The elbow then takes the ball through the path. Elbow gets to armpit height. It then, and this is one of the things I don't share ever, uh, but I'll do it today on podcast. So this is like the secret is that the elbow gets into the scap load, which is like a spring when it gets into that spring. And that elbow is a, right at armpit height or give or take a couple degrees and goes into that layback and stays in that plane, doesn't doesn't go up or below the armpit, doesn't get into the ladder, doesn't get way high into the trap, that's the magic. And that's where the ball will come out and almost feel like it has like an assist, like it almost is getting pushed out with more power than the athlete actually even tried to give. And that's what gets exciting for me because that's when we put the athletes into that position, all of a sudden, these POs, these outfielders, they were sticking their landing without even trying. And the stick in your landing is basically when the timing all matches perfectly on landing Mm -hmm. where your body weight is and where that scap gets loaded, you're essentially all the bones are lining up in in what I call kind of the perfect, perfect position to be able to support whatever power you're giving that and bones are much stronger than the muscles around them. So when they line up, it's, it, it creates a great platform in which to rotationally, throw the ball and get the ball out uh, at the highest speed possible or accuracy. And that is what we call efficiency. And when I can get that arm path in the right spot without at the right time, that's when we call it pocket whip and stick because the pocket is the path to get there. The whip is the layback. And if it's in the layback position where it's clean, it's not underneath the armpit or it's not high. Like you see your inverted W kind of guys, Mm -hmm. then you have a recipe for uh, an athlete responding in a very, very almost, almost shocking, surprising way when they look at you after that one throw and they, they kind of hit it and they feel felt that exact spot and they go, Oh my God, like, what was that? Mm-hmm. You almost have to let them feel it. Um, and I encourage people and coaches, I was just talking to one of the players today when coaches come in and they just listen, they just take this pocket theory as, Oh yeah, we're, we, have, we we have, we've tried that. We've hit ground balls to our pitchers and and had them and they look great when they're taking ground balls, but then they just don't do it in the game. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not, you're not creating a knowledge of why, and you're definitely not creating enough reps and drills before that to lead up like a hitting coach would. And that's kind of the, the, the base of, so that's how I got to how we teach these things. So before I was teaching the end of it and I was on to it, but I realized really quickly I needed to teach the beginning in part to line up everything at the right time. And once it made that adjustment, it was just, wow. Now, if someone's in a great pocket and they're getting into the right time, but they're having trouble still in how, what I mean by trouble is they're not staying in their landing. They can't stick their landing. And by the way, this isn't for games. This would not be for games. This is for catch play. This is for their plyo ball work. This is for their bullpen. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you go into a hundred percent game energy effort, uh, that's a whole different ball game. That's just like a, 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 a Olympic racer who's running a hundred yard dash. He can stop you know, 20 yards past the finish line in all his practices. But you, when he's, when he's into that Olympic event where he's going against the best in the world, he's going to need about 30 more yards to stop. But because he's done his technique perfectly through the the, the four years leading up to that Olympic event, then you just let him go. And that's how we we operate when we pitch. So people kind of like think, uh, maybe have an idea of like, oh, you're trying to stop you and know, stick your landing on the mount. No, you're working on your body to perform that. of the other throws. So that way, when it does ask it to do it at, at the highest possible energy output, it's going to be used to it. It's going to know where to be at the right time. And again, that goes back to the theory of the shortstop. He's not trying to do anything, but get his elbow up above his armpit and just throw the ball. And he does that all the time without even knowing it. you get him on the mound and it just takes some very minimal time to adjust on when to get to that point. So he just learns how to time that with the stride without adding a bunch of extra stuff. He just kind of what we call carries the pocket longer and he lets it build and he keeps it simple. And then once it's in the right spot, foot strike, stick your landing, ball goes into that scap like a spring and bam, that thing comes out like a rocket. So that's kind of where, where we uh, identify stuff.
1: Perfect. Now I'm sitting here trying to visualize it and I, I think you're doing an absolutely fantastic job of explaining it in a way that makes sense. But if there's someone who, was trying to look up maybe a major league pitcher that they can find some video on that that does. W- what are some of the examples that you usually use?
0: Yeah, you can. You'd be surprised once you start looking at it. I have a couple uh, major league uh, pitching coaches and also mm-hmm. minor league pitching coordinators that they'll text me now and go, "Damn it, I can't watch a can't watch a highlight or a game now without seeing it." It's <laughs> <That's laughs> you know? awesome. So uh, it's really cool once you start to kind of identify that window, you'll see it. Even I have moms that come in, they will just like. Hey, is he this? This pitcher is really good at it. Uh, yep, that's another good one. So you can look at like Scherzer, you can look at uh, Kershaw, you can look at Joe Kelly, Baldy, you, you uh, Degrom. Literally, the entire Mets staff is a really great one to watch. Uh, and once you start seeing it, you're going to like really notice it. I know it might be hard to, even as I'm describing it on this podcast, I'm actually really doing it because <laughs> that's the only way I can kind All of right. picture it. So hopefully there's hopefully there'll be people listening in. They're doing it themselves and not feel bad because I'm doing it. I'm doing it as I'm talking it, but it's, it's something that once you look at it, DeGrom's a really great one to look at because some of them are really subtle. So you look at DeGrom and, and he's, um, he's, uh, an all-star pitcher in whatever, 2017 or 16. And then you kind of come back forward and you look at his season last year and you go, wow, this is a Cy young guy. He's, he's a whole nother animal. Right. If you look at the comparable of each of them, you'll see if you know what you're looking at the window, that, that arm path behind has become just a little more compact Mm -hmm. and just a little better timed, And you'll see for sure how that elbow comes up over the armpit stays over into layback, and never goes down. And, you know, again, you'll see it in a lot of guys. And by the way, it doesn't mean you'll see everybody do that, but you will see guys that have, at my age, there are the ages we work with a lot of the younger kids or even the, the minor league guys who will probably play just another year or two because they won't try to fix this. They'll just keep trying to get stronger in the weight room. And not try to get more efficient, you'll look at the delivery of the elbow path, and you'll go, "Wow!" Because it's a sequence thing as well. So we call it, call basically the pocket a sequence of going from. If you labeled it, I'm touching my trap right now, my shoulder. Then I'm going to touch my elbow. Let's say that's number one, and number two is elbow. Number three is my hand. So picture that as the uh, a whip. Like your arm is kind of a whip. If the whip follows that sequence, one shoulder, two elbow, three arm into that path into the scap into the shoulder blade then you're going through a really really perfect sequence a really natural sequence if that sequence is kind of changed meaning if i went three the end of the whip first then the elbow two and then the shoulder uh we tend to see a lot of problems with that and the, the sequence is is really based off if someone does that at a young age and they don't have the athleticism to correct it just just as a um, natural way of just trying to fix it on the fly which is an ideal but they'll be a complete mess and they won't ever be able to throw it at a very high level. You change that sequence to what the natural sequence. And you imagine if I had a whip in my hand and I'm and I'm going to crack that whip. And if somebody, somebody halfway through me trying to, to crack that whip, he throws the end of the whip forward. Well, it's going to change all my sequence. It's going to either get rid of the good crack of the whip, or I can just try to figure out how to manipulate my body around and still try to make that whip happen. So maybe moving my head out of the way or my body and then still try to crack the whip. So again, if I'm super athletic, I'll be able to still crack that whip, but I would be a lot better option if I just told the guy behind me to quit doing that. So I can just let that whip be the last thing that comes through and just crack that handle and and feel that good snap of the whip. So that's what I feel like the arm is like. If I could get that ball, at the end of the whip, to be the last thing coming through with the least amount of energy until it's time to get into that load of the scap and then hit the ground and bam power out, then I'm doing a pretty good job of keeping tension out, and I'm probably going to be easier to control the ball, to uh, manipulate it or to uh, stay healthier.
1: Let me take a few seconds to tell you guys about on base you. OnBase University is an organization that studies how the human body moves in baseball and softball. They offer certification seminars that teach coaches, trainers, and medical professionals how to assess an athlete's physical ability to perform movement patterns that are specific to hitting and pitching. For example, they just put up a blog post on their website, onbaseu.com, that discussed why hip internal rotation is important in hitting and how they evaluate it with their OnBase U screen. If you want to learn more about OnBaseU, I did a podcast with the OnBaseU founder, Dr. Greg Rose, episode 78, and he talked about how he modeled the screen after golf assessments that he created for TPI. They are hosting pitching and hitting seminars in Phoenix, Newark, and Houston over the next few months. I will be attending one soon, and I hope to see you there. I love it. And you know, going through your explanation, the the guy that I thought of was Joe Kelly with the Cardinals early on, and then Joe Kelly with the mm-hmm. Red Sox, and and the change in, in yeah. his arm path, and and obviously that's yep. I mean, he went from being a starter to a reliever, and I obviously you could go into some detail about that, but uh, he talked about his journey mm-hmm. through that and and how it's it's made him feel a whole lot better, more efficient and helped him with his process but if we're uh if, if do you guys do any physical assessments on the players you you talked about you you do a lot of you're yep. watching them especially on the first day mm-hmm. but do you guys do any screening or anything like that
0: Yes we have um, Arturo is our, one of our trainers here and he's the kind of more of the physical uh assessment coach so what he'll do is go through your typical um, you know, blend of FMS, uh, type screening to a lot of pressies, uh, sh- uh, shoulder blades gap work. And then he also addresses a lot of the hip stuff from, uh, uh Greg cook and the low back stuff from, from these guys. So, um, they'll go through that whole assessment and, uh, will that'll be kind of blending their workout and kind of putting the, in the weight room, the stuff that they need to get improvement on. It's kind of interesting, you know, with, with what we see, it's, it's, the physical therapy side of things or the assessment side of things, they might see, you know, some issues in tight hips or, you know, the scaps being uh, lower or whatever that may be that they might see some winging. And they'll give the, the athlete all these exercises to perform those better, especially if we're talking about, let's talk about the shoulder blades and they'll give them a lot of exercises where they're emphasizing proper scapular movement. And, and that's great. But what's the disconnect is that the pitching coach doesn't understand why that therapist is doing that. And the pitching coach should understand that because if you think about what's happening is that shoulder blades not functioning correctly. And when that stops to function correctly, you know, we're sitting here as a pitcher, as a high level thrower, that's such a crucial part of your body to be working properly, not just to put the humeral head in the right position, but to use that as that scap. So whenever I look at uh, when I started to look at those scap plank pluses or the, uh, shoulder blade, you know, trying to work on getting the movement of the Y's on the, on the wall that Cressy puts a lot of, uh, points onto, I started to think about, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Why the high level thrower, the better his scaps can move either. That's a just spine and back along its rib cage, the better, the more spring we can get. So it would make sense for me to look for athletes that maybe are using a ball dominant approach. like so we talked about in that whip, what I call ball dominant, like you talked about Joe Kelly, when pitchers tend to just rip their break out of their glove, namely their handbrake, they tend to great, create great momentum out of that. And great is not the right word, but maybe too much momentum. And then when momentum is created like that, it's hard to find that path back again. So when we control the break a little slower, then that's a big difference you'll see. in And like the Cardinals version of Joe Kelly and the, the version now, you'll see that the ball is much more controlled and that the elbow now and the arm path is controlled in a, in a matter to get to the scap. And then the better that scap gets into that spring and out of that spring and to the right place, it's, it, it creates a, a much higher spin. And that's where we saw a lot of our pitchers were going to spring training and they'd come back or they'd call and they'd, they'd text me going, man, my spin rate uh, increased X amount. And we know why, because we know that the arm by being put in that better position was being able to, smoothly come out of that, that, uh, layback and which creates a heck of a lot more, uh, extension out there and then more, more spin on the ball. So, and that wasn't because we, we knew that we were creating spin more spin. It was really just a byproduct of the teams were telling us, Hey, your players are all ranked in these high levels of spin rate on the team. What are you guys doing? So teams were coming out asking me, what are you guys doing here? That's different. And we don't see all the computers. We don't see all the uh, different high speed cameras and all this other stuff. And I simply was telling them what, what I just told you guys and the drills that we put them through, and the uh, the differences were being made were pretty pretty staggering.
1: No, absolutely fantastic. And you know, an- another thing that I I'm all in on, and that's culture. And you know, from the looks of things, and again, I I've never been there, and all I see is what you guys are posting on social media all the time. But it looks like you guys have the culture aspect rolling, and I love that. And I, I think that your culture breeds excellence. And so talk to us about, especially from the from getting it started to where it is now, how have you guys been intentional about building the culture there? And what have you guys done for that?
0: Uh, yeah. Oh, I love our culture. Um, and the neat part about our culture, and, and maybe I had a hand in this in the beginning, and I guess maybe I, I don't give myself enough credit for it, but uh, just, just the person I am, I think creating a humble, a uh, really high-level athlete, but a humble high-level athlete is very, very important. Okay. Um, I do not care for any athlete that has has to show off what he does, has to tell us what he does. It, that goes even to the parent. I don't really even want to go down that road. But I don't. You don't need that in in your gym, and it lasts for about five minutes before everybody's kind of over that. So that's how I am. So I, I don't know. Maybe I was able to create that because if an athlete, you know, was bragging about being the know, the, uh, Oh, I'm, I'm going to be probably a first round pick this year you or know, whatever. I said, well, okay, cool. I was already no big deal. And, uh, if they were telling me, Oh, well, you don't understand because awesome. uh, I'm, I'm the top quarterback or I'm the top, uh, I have two sports and two scholarship offers. Eh, okay. I did that too. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, Oh, well I'm getting to the major league. Well, okay. I did that too. Because so you I, right. you know, I, I think <laughs> I have a little street cred. So, uh, when they see me, not being cocky or not being uh, talk about my career, talk about myself constantly. And I'm more about taking care of the athlete and finding out how he's doing and how, who he is. And also treating the top kid in the room, just like the kid who just got here and is, is, is kind of overwhelmed or shy or nervous or scared, or, you know, he's, he's a little afraid to be in there. Like that to me is if I can treat those two the same and both feel like I'm treating them the same, that breeds the type of people that I want in there. Once that was established, those types of athletes find, and families too, those types of athletes and families find programs that those kind of people are around and that attracts the whole culture. And then the culture is done. Like I don't have to do anything anymore. I mean, when I have a kid that comes in and, and he's a 2.0 student and he's doing stuff he shouldn't do. And he's, uh, you know, being a, being a dummy in the workout, cheating and cutting corners and all these things. I don't need to say anything to him because he's not getting anybody around him to to fall into his style of, of work, you know, and he'll disappear himself. Like I don't have to like push him out. And that's what I love about our culture in here is that it kind of self maintains itself as long as I don't change. And if I don't change, I keep my standards that way. Uh, no matter where I'm at or how, how successful we get, then that culture will stay the same. I think it's been built. Long, long ago.
1: I love that answer, and that's part of surrounding yourself with people that are just as good or better than you. That push you every day, and and you're setting that that tone every day uh, of what you're modeling that behavior that you want. And and I, you know, that's something that I truly, truly believe in. And another thing that you probably get asked all the time from the facility side is from team coaches: is how do we how do we make more individualized plans for our pitchers. And I'll just be honest, you know, with, with any player, it's really hard to make an individualized plan when you have, you know, 40 to 50 in a program, but what's your best advice regarding that?
0: I think the first advice is to create a, a system in place that you, you know, for us, it's easy. I think for us, because we, we created this system for years and um, we've kind of tweaked it and gotten it better and better over the years to where we can point out pretty easily if an athlete is having trouble in certain windows, then we just create that window for them and that drill work to, to help them with. And, you know, not all of it's going to be arm path all the time. It's going to be also some, a lot to do with landings or the lower half, if it were. So by creating an eval step, so if I was, if I'm a coach that has 15, 20 guys on a team, then the first thing I want to do is, is almost schedule these five pitchers for individual evals for Monday and then Tuesday. So it's almost like you're having your, uh, your, your first week is just spent on, let's see how they play catch and let's see what their habits are. Once you kind of are knowing what windows to look for and you're not distracted by results, like waiting for them to get guys out. I think that's too too far down the road. You need to kind of address things that you see, whether it's a a habit of a guy who maybe, maybe he's, he's got great mechanics, but he's lazy and he doesn't really, you know, finish things off or whatever it may be or another guy who has a ton of just stabbing and does a lot of rapping, and, or another guy who's just too far intense. He's just trying to throw a hundred miles an hour at, at every single throw he makes. Once you establish like a baseline for them, and then you create their, their drills, you can have them self-maintain now for the rest of the year and then add and subtract whatever you start to see that makes, um, makes a difference. Because I'll tell you, if you can make a, a pitcher, a thrower, I'm sorry, efficient, mm-hmm. and he can throw the ball, accurately velocity wise and stay healthy in catch play, then you're going to have that same guy on the mound. Sure. Just like when I've had coaches that tell me, you know, what is a pocket? What is this pocket thing? And I go, well, and we were at a, a showcase at this time and there was about 25 pitchers that were, or actually there was two teams. And they were throwing down the right field, left field line. I said, I said simply cause I didn't have enough time to explain to them everything. I said, look at these throwers down the right field line. I want you to pick out the top few throwers that you see, out of the entire group. Okay. So it was just a bunch of high school players and these three or four coaches all agreed. They picked four guys and out of these 30 or so throwers that were throwing down the line, they picked three pitchers that were our guys that worked with us that they didn't know that they worked with us because it was the first day that they had seen him. And the other guy was a shortstop who was not working with us, but he was the shortstop for one of the top shortstops. So they essentially picked out the four most eye-pleasing, eye-catching deliveries. And it was based off, it just looked right. It was, velocity was good, but it was clean. So there are other guys throwing just as hard. So you couldn't see like velocity because they weren't by a radar gun. This is from far away from kind of the infield watching the guys on the outfield. But I said, what you guys just kind of picked up with your eyes and your instincts is exactly what the pocket is. Okay. It's get, And I guarantee you those four guys are probably going to be one of your better pitchers on the team today. And it was true. And that's kind of the, the, the concept is to try to get those, get everybody looking efficient and throwing well, because it's not just a good standard for, you know, for what the eye and the coaching instincts is when they say a, a good high level thrower and they want that kid as they're on their team. But it also is going to allow that kid, in my opinion, to throw healthier and longer and try to tap into what his really true ability can be. Uh, and then that's kind of the the concept that I, the simplest form of it when I talk about it.
1: Sure, and something that you know, I'm really curious about. I I feel like one could read a decent amount of information and find out how to help pitchers increase velocity, but I don't think that there's a lot about how to develop command. And the the answer that I get a lot is be intentional with every ball that you throw. And so I just I want to ask you just directly, how you know how do you go about developing command? Because I it's it's not easy to do.
0: Mm, Yeah. No, it's it isn't easy to do, and I would not tell you that I was this high and high uh, command guy when I pitched. You know, I got to the big leagues, Um, but you have a. I I think, I think the easiest way to say, and it's but it's the hardest way because baseball is not built like this. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's the longevity factor, right? It's the do something. What's the ten thousand hour rule kind of thing? Uh You definitely have to have a much better awareness of making each throw with an intent of hitting your target that's absolutely 100% going to uh, enhance that. Now, that being said, I kind of say this a lot. I think there's a lot of people that are attorneys and office workers or waiters or bartenders that could have been major league pitchers, but baseball didn't give them enough time. And that's just the way baseball is built. If If you have enough time, as I played year after year, now that's where the signing bonuses and things like that, unfortunately, are one of the reasons why the guys will have more time because they have more money invested in them. And the guys who might be free agents have less time. There's a lot of those free agents that were going to be good enough, but because there's another draft or every single year and they have to bring in more players. So basically those guys have to be the first ones out. If you're a free agent, you have to be like, you have to be so good, so fast and never ever have a, a blip or a speed bump until you get to like, build enough times where they go, okay, this guy's pretty good. I think, I think we believe in him now where the other draft picks can have a lot of years of struggling and the longer they, they keep continuing to pitch and they keep showing up for the next year, the next year, the game slows down for them. Now I say this a lot, the game didn't slow down obviously, right? Still 60 foot. That's all still all these 90 foot. What happened was they slowed down. How did they slow down? Because they, they are not getting as worked up and, Anxious as they were when they were an A ball in front of that first Fourth of July crowd that was, you know, 1,500 people where that felt like it was 50,000. And then they go to double A and that 5,000 feels like 100,000, but they do that enough. And all of a sudden you start to kind of calm down. And the one big thing you see in high level pitchers is they don't look like they're trying to throw the ball uh, in a run and gun pull down motion all the time. It is a very calm, compact, well stored energy throw that they have mastered over time their instincts or they've been coached to do that smartly coached to do that. And that I think is where, where I think the game kind of gets needs to get back to in the younger development ages is the idea of not trying to chase that, that next PR on their velocity at age 12 and 14 and 13 and 15 or whatever age they're, they're just trying to rip and try to throw as hard as they can and develop maybe some strength, but they're developing a lot of other bad things too in the same way there's got to be some balance there. And I don't think there's a lot of balance at the moment. And I think, um, as an athlete plays the game longer, you're going to see much more command. Now I know the trade-off and the arguments could be, well, you know, if you're throwing 95 plus, you can get away with a lot more. Um, I get that, but I'm just saying as a whole, uh, that person, if he doesn't play long enough, it doesn't matter how hard he's, you're throwing. If he's injured in two years of playing, playing pro ball or major league baseball, I guess that might've been good enough for him, but I don't think as a whole for the game, it's good enough. I think if I'm a pitcher trying to do, I want to play for a long time. I don't want to just get there and, and say, I got there And um, that. that to me is where longevity becomes very important because that gives you more reps. That gets you closer to that quote unquote, 10,000 hour rule. How do you get more reps Well, you control intensity? If you control intensity, you can have more volume. So that again is where I go back to working on with those. When we work our plyo drills, with those little balls or the catch play, it's a very it's it's not at a high intensity. It's at a master the technique and the move intensity. I don't mean to go quote on everybody and go Karate Kid, but that mm-hmm. uh, Bruce Lee quote of I'd rather you know I, I fear the man who's practiced one kick ten thousand times, not ten thousand kicks one time. And essentially, it's a kind of I know it's a simple answer, but that's really the simplicity of it.
1: Awesome, I love that and and I love that some of that comes from your personal experience and. And I think that that's that mm-hmm. definitely has some credibility to that. And you talk about balance a lot and man, it's it, we don't have to live on one, one side or the other. I think the gray area is a pretty good spot to, to be in and a lot of different things that, that because we look at guys that are really, really good and they're good at a lot of different things. They're not just good at one thing or another. And, and I love that. and I love, love hearing that from you. And so let's, let's flash forward to in season, which is, you know what we're getting in now, and California has been in season for probably a couple weeks now. But what would a let's say that I, I think I, you know talking with some guys, I just got back from LA, and I think they play about three times a week in high school, and mm-hmm. obviously once a week, uh, your guys at least for starters. But what would a a week look like for guys that are that are training with you that are now in high school or in college, and how would you if if you could if you could ideally set up their week for them? Could you take us through just a little bit of what each day would look like?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it does. It does uh, vary. Some high school programs sure. um, have a very specific plan. Some don't have any. Some say they do, but don't. There's different, very variables in that. But I would say that the um, typical pitcher who maybe let's let's say he's throwing on uh, on Friday. So let's, let's say it's their Friday starter. He'll throw a game on Friday and that's you kind of prepare whichever way that you're comfortable preparing day two, the, the day after it kind of becomes more of an option. But if I think about these things, um, if, if the best way, I guess to most simplify it is if you think of what is the most, uh, high intensity action that a baseball player can do on their arm, there's pretty much like four different ways. There's the game, which is obviously the most intense, the most layback, the highest amount of volume. Then you have a high-intensity bullpen. So if you're a high-intensity bullpen guy, you like to throw harder in the bullpen. That's the second one. Uh, If you're a long-toss guy and you're out to your max distance, then that's going to be your high-intensity arm. And then the uh, other one is going to be a pull-down. So then maybe someone likes to do pull-downs, whether that's in a radar gun environment or just a out out after after long-toss gun environment. So So the reason why you need to know these four is is to bring kind of a common sense approach to it to make your kind of life easier and plan out if you're on, so it doesn't matter what day you're doing this on, is that if you were to max out high intensity on your legs, let's say, for a workout, I think everybody would agree you're not going to go do that the next day. You're either going to do an upper body lift, or you're going to give yourself a complete rest, or you're going to do a light leg lift to kind of break up some soreness. So if you take that common sense approach that everybody kind of knows to do, then you know on any of those type of four things that you've done, then you can take that same approach. I'm not gonna long toss as far as I can on Monday and then long toss on Tuesday, back to back, and long toss on Thursday, if I really pushed out to my longest distance. Mm-hmm. Because now your body needs time to prepare all the tissue, micro tears, those kind of things. Same if I had a game, same if I did all this stuff. Now. If you want to gear down those things and not get to your max, so let's obviously you couldn't do that in a game, but you might eliminate pull downs or your long toss is 90% of your distance, or you just throw your 100% distance, but you're trying to gear down and not throw as much volume or, or intensity, or you uh, are going to throw a bullpen, which let's say you're going to throw a lighter bullpen, which maybe could be a, a short box or just a lower intensity bullpen. Uh, with the Braves, we used to throw back-to-back bullpens when I when I played it, and that was in a five-day rotation, but they were specifically shorter and more about control and touch and feel or breaking balls on one day and just fastball command on another day. So there's um, there's ways that you can just, all right, I, I, I was going to throw a light bullpen, but it, it ended up being 40 pitches and a little bit longer. All right, well, then – tomorrow I'm going to have a light day of playing catch because I don't want to go bullpen, high intense bullpen. Then I'm going to go do pull downs the next day. Then I'm going to do long toss the next day. And then I got a day off and then I'm going to do game. Well, if you, you see that that's three high intensity days that your body's not recovering. So just approach it pretty simply like you would approach uh, just a general workout and use that approach for your throwing. Does that make sense? Kind of what I'm saying? No,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, it's something that that kids need to have an understanding of uh, if they don't have a plan to make one, just, just so uh, routine is a lot of, of what builds in consistency, I think. And, and so I love hearing everybody and especially your, uh, your week long stuff, because then we can pick and choose and make that plan individualized. And, you know, in the past, whenever I yep. did work with pitchers a little bit, some guys like to get on the mound more, some guys didn't. Yep. And it just, you know, it, it totally depended on, what they wanted to do. And I would give them some freedom within that, which is what, what you're talking about as well. And so we get done and do you guys, you have your guys do anything the night of after they get done pitching? Because I used to, and then, you know, talking with, with a couple people about that, they say, you know, they just threw 100 pitches at a really high rate and they're tired. Mm-hmm. And some of the best things that they can do is rest. And I used to have them do some sprints or do some post-throwing uh, deceleration work and, you know, upward throws and rebounders and, and different things like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, what's, what's your advice on that? And just, I, I love to hear, you know, what, what guys are doing after or, and again, it all comes back to the individual and, and what they like. But what would your advice be regarding, you know, post-throwing routines or uh, especially conditioning?
0: Yeah. And can I add one more thing I think is a good piece of advice before sure. I Sure. Yeah, go ahead. About yeah, about that making that week one-week plan yours. I have my pitchers now. Uh, some of my college guys, I'm having them buy a calendar. Okay, so this sounds like old school, but I know writing down stuff uh, on paper seems to be still the best way to do it. But I'll I'll have them buy a big eight by eleven calendar or those big old ones from from those Barnes and Noble or something, and have them record what they're doing each day after they've done it, so that they can kind of keep that log all year long, and then they can look at their best weeks and their best games and start to kind of see if there's a pattern of things. Cause there, there may be things that changed, you know, they might've had the, a, a pre-plan, but then maybe rain came or a doubleheader was uh, postponed. The game has come up and, and different things, right? If they record that on a big calendar and there's something about a big calendar. And the reason I'm saying that, like, I know you could do that on your phone. I know a phone has a calendar. I know you have a memo card, you all that kind of stuff. But there's something about that just visual when you see it and you write it down that I think can kind of paint a better, a bigger, a better picture for the whole entire month. Um, so I would suggest that they do that as they're trying to plan out. Because as you said, everybody's a little different. So why not um, kind of let them have that that ability to kind of plan out and see what their their week looked like. Maybe it's their worst week, and they they notice that. Man, you know what? I didn't throw as far as I usually do. I didn't do. Um, I didn't eat very good or my sleep sucked. You know, you, Mm -hmm. you just kind of create this like, um, kind of model that they can kind of create. So I know I I didn't want to forget that. And then on the other side of things on the, on post throwing post game. Yeah. Everybody's been different. I've, I've played with guys who went right directly to the weight room and busted out some, some legs and, and some back exercises right afterwards. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about. There's plenty of people out there that say, you know, well, why are we going to, uh, re-fatigue the, the body that's already fatigued it's trying to recover I, I honestly you know do you ice do you mark pro do you stem there, there's a million different do you cryotherapy so there's a lot of different things and I think going back to maybe just trying different things uh, and recording it might be your best, um, your best answer to that and I don't really give everybody a full hard you got to do this you got to sprint you got to do this afterwards I really t- tend to uh, make sure that they're getting a good uh, healthy diet after recovery. They're, they're getting sleep, they're getting uh, a lift the next day that might be more leg and, and back dominant and just let them kind of just recover, let their body and their mind recover from, from their game. If they didn't pitch a lot or they just a bullpen guy and they want to stay on their plan for lifting, then stay on your plan for lifting. If that's been feeling good, if you're a starter, it's a little different thing. You know, you might, you might be a starter though, and you might be knocked out of the game in the third inning and, thrown 20, you know, 25 pitches or something or just been pulled. So there's a lot of different factors that can, that need to be uh, flexible on, on how you approach it. So to me, um, I think it's just an experiment.
1: Got it. Definitely. And uh, long story short, it's uh, it's all about the individual. And I, I love that answer. And that's, that's why it is so hard to be able to do that, but it comes down to having consistent communication and having the kids think about it a lot. And, So I'm, I'm really, you know, you, you've been doing this for a little while and what's something that you've learned lately that's gotten you really excited?
0: Oh, I mean, pretty easy answer there. That's going to be the pocket. I'm telling you (laughs) that thing gets me excited. Even this morning, I, I, I I had a new pitcher come in that has, I haven't seen in a while. And and he just, we had a couple of new kind of twists and ideas to how to get to that, that spring of the shoulder blade. And he's. Just walking out of this place as if he's just been given a new lease on on baseball life. (laughs) That, to me, gives me more enjoyment than anything I could uh, ever imagine coming out of baseball, even my own career.
1: (laughs) Sure, sure. I'll have to for all the pitching coaches out there, definitely definitely give that a look. And and that's yeah. really interesting because I've never heard the terms pocket, whip, and stick before, but as I'm feeling through it, as you're explaining it, it man, it's it, it really is. It's it's eye opening for sure.
0: Oh so, it makes makes too too much sense. Uh, right, <laughs> that's why. right.
1: And what so uh so you show up some, one day to the facility and you tell all of your players that you guys are doing this today or it's this day of the week and they get to do this what would that be so something that gets them really excited mm-hmm. they love in their training whether that's a competition or just uh whatever that could be a game just anything that that you have regarding that i'd love to steal that from you
0: oh um I, I, the way we kind of there's a big natural competitiveness around this whole environment and the culture that we have here so we have like it's almost fun to watch the bullpens go on because everybody kind of is around the mound and, and watching each one get better. And and it's neat because these kids, when they can see the windows that we talk about, they become very good at being coaches for themselves, but not only themselves, but their, their partner in throwing or their buddy on their teammate, they bring in to or to a gym or encourage, Hey, you know what? This is working for me. So to me, it's, it's kind of that element. There's not really a, uh, I I enjoy having a lot of people watch bullpens and be around the bullpen, create kind of a little bit of a, you know, they're not, sometimes they're roasting each other, you know, which is kind of fun. Uh, Sometimes they're just watching and just going, getting excited for them when you see these light bulbs pop on competition wise or things like that, you know, I, I, you know, there's not, not too much of that. I don't have a great idea for it. Otherwise though we do have a gym with basketball in in our gym. So uh, we do have to kind of temper and control there will need their wants to leave the workouts, uh, and go play workout or play basketball or horse. So that, that might be one of the things that I get a little bit, uh, trying to wrangle them in for, Mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I have a great answer for like some sort of exact, I don't know, competition. I hear what you're saying, but I think the whole environment creates its own competition of, of just wanting the other kid to be successful. Even if they're, even if they are playing against each other that week, it's always been pretty cool to see
1: definitely definitely kids love competition and we talk about the kids these days but we put them in the in the competitive environment and i mean it's it's just in our nature to love that and and I'm always trying yeah. to steal, steal really good drills from other people that involves that and trying to think about ways that we can make it competitive or just keep a point system for that because it heightens your awareness, mm-hmm. it locks you in psychologically, and, and that's really good. But before you go, the, yeah. the question that I ask everyone is their for their favorite resources and books, just because I'm always on the lookout for different ways to say things or different things to learn. And so what are some different resources that have shaped your coaching career?
0: You know, I, I, I love, um, Don Yeager, who's a a friend of mine and did a book, uh, did a book with him called complete athlete. That's my book, but the book he had that I really like is the greatest teams where it kind of goes into all these teams that have been super successful, the Patriots and some of these other, uh, dynasty type teams. And he's, um, kind of broken them down and, and looked at them and kind of found out what, what made them the way they were made. I love that book. I think that's a great book for everybody to jump into another book. I like is called competing against luck. Um, that's a cool book just about how to stay focused on, on how to grow things and how to almost be kind of an entrepreneur and, and not be satisfied with, with just, uh, what you've accomplished and just keep continuing to try to grow. Those are kind of some of the, the, the books that I like to, in the, the style of books that I like to kind of read is more about less about baseball, mm-hmm. more about, uh, just the general concept of, uh, I don't know, being an entrepreneur or just, um, just being around great, great teams and habits.
1: Sure. I, I think that you take any coach from any field and you give them enough time and they could be another, a great coach in another field for sure, because success yeah. leaves clues and you, you put Bill, Bill Belichick in, in a baseball uniform and he'd figure out a way to win, but yeah. Before you go, Dave, I, I really appreciate you taking the time for us today, and, and I, I've really truly loved our conversation. I just want to again say thank you and for taking the time to do that. But is there anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners before you go?
0: Uh, well, you can you can find a lot of these, a lot of my pocket drills and uh, information on my book and my app. I have an app okay. um, you can find on iTunes called um, Complete Athlete. And you can download that. You can even uh, follow me on that app and, and ask me questions through there and see the video library. You'll see some soccer videos as well. Just scroll down to the bottom. You'll see the baseball videos. Um, that's a cool thing. The book itself, I think uh, every single parent and every travel ball organization should get the, the book for them because actually it's more about the lifestyle and the habits of some of our uh, best athletes on and off the field. I did it with Trevor Hoffman and... Um, mm-hmm. Hall of Fame coach, uh, Mike Martin from Florida state and wrote the book with, uh, New York times, bestselling author, Don Yeager. And I think we put together something for three years of work that really dives into just every little detail and information from nutrition to leadership to preparation and attitude. Uh, it really has a bit of everything in there and you can find that, uh, the hard copy at Amazon. And I just love if, uh, people would share that and, and also, uh, share their, um, share how it helped them and if they like the book just let me know. I'd love to share that that thought on social media as well.
1: Well, how will they get in touch with you if they are wanting to um, ask you any questions?
0: Yep. Uh, on the app you can you can chat with me directly Perfect. and you can request request to connect
1: or you can um, go
0: to my Instagram and and you can DM us there as well at TFA strong one.
1: Awesome. Well, Dave, I appreciate your time and thanks again for being with us. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. Before you go, I'd love to be able to get in touch with you, and we have several different ways of doing so. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AOTC underscore podcast. You can join the AOTC Coaches Facebook group. And if you want to be a part of the mini clinic emails, both of those links are listed below. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating or review to help others find and stay Ahead of the Curve.